So I want to focus your attention this morning on Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. The Ten Commandments are given to us in two places in the Bible, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. But I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Last week, I started this series on the Ten Commandments that I entitled Unmasked. And we launched this series by looking at Matthew chapter 5 which seemed a little strange uh, at the outset. But I said that the reason any study of the Ten Commandments should start with the Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The reason that any study of the Ten Commandments should start with the Sermon on the Mount is because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus interprets the Ten Commandments. So if we want to understand what the Ten Commandments are, the best place to go is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, because in those chapters, in that sermon, Jesus himself is explaining what the Ten Commandments are, their function, and specifically how to interpret them. And he explains, Jesus explains in that sermon, that the nature of God's law is that it's not a, it's not a ladder, that we climb to get God's love and to get God's blessings. That's oftentimes the way people think of the Ten Commandments. If I can just do these things that God requires of me, then I will get all of the blessings that God has for me. Um, But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explains the nature of God's law and how God's law is not a ladder we climb to get God's love and blessings. Rather, it is an impassable wall an impenetrable wall that we crash into so that we finally admit we can't do it. In other words, the Ten Commandments are intended to level us, to put us on our back so that the only way out is up. Um, I saw a quote a few weeks ago that I couldn't wait to use. I just had to wait for the right time, and this is the right time. Um, You've heard me talk about Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was, uh, in my opinion, probably the greatest preacher of the 20th century. He ministered for most of his life um, in London at Westminster Chapel. He was Welsh, Um, and I saw a quote from him the other day, uh, well, a few weeks ago now, that was so powerful and I think really summarizes the Sermon on the Mount so perfectly. He says this, the whole point of our Lord's teaching was to show us that it is impossible. Have you ever thought about that? He says, Jesus's teaching was to show us that we could not do it. Very poignant, not typically the way that we think. In our minds, we tend to believe that an ought implies a can. Okay, so um, to get philosophical with you for just a moment, Immanuel Kant, who was a German philosopher um, a long, long time ago, developed this idea that um, an ought, someone telling you you ought to do something, uh, carries with it the power to be able to do it. But that's not biblical Christianity. Um, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones gets it better than Immanuel Kant 
when he says that the entire point of Jesus' teaching was to show us that it is impossible. Um, and here's the thing. It's not that the Ten Commandments are bad. Obviously, they come from God. That's not the problem with the Ten Commandments. Our problem with the Ten Commandments is not that they're bad. Our problem with the Ten Commandments is that they are perfect. That's the problem. Um, they demand more than we can give. Um, so God doesn't, and this is what Jesus makes very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to see this as we make our way through each of the Ten Commandments. God doesn't demand effort. He doesn't simply demand that we try hard. He demands perfection. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in the Sermon on the Mount when he summarizes that entire section in Matthew chapter 5 by simply saying basically this, everything I've just said can be summarized with this sentence, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Drops the mic, exit stage left. Flattens everybody. Nobody can do that. Uh, the best, most religious person in the room can't be perfect as God is perfect. And that was Jesus' entire point. So um, God doesn't simply demand effort, trying hard. Um, he demands perfection. So, so no matter how hard we try, we will always fall short of God's requirements. Always. And the Bible says this all over the place. Um, all have fallen short of God's glory. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There is no one good, no, not one. Jesus tells the um, rich young ruler who comes up to him and says, good teacher, and Jesus corrects him. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. In other words, I'm not simply a teacher. I'm God. Um, so, I mean, Jesus makes it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. The Ten Commandments make it very clear, as we will see, um, that we will never, ever meet God's requirements the way God requires us to meet those requirements. So God's law, therefore, is intended to unmask our helplessness before God. That's why the series is entitled Unmasked. It's intended to unmask our helplessness before God because it's only when we finally admit that we can't do it that we will look to the one who did everything for us. And so I said at the end of the sermon last week that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, which is our only hope. That's our only hope. Our relationship with God can only be perfectly unconditional because Jesus kept all of God's perfect conditions for us. That's why. That's why we can enjoy the unconditionality of God's love toward us. That's why I can say things like I did a few minutes ago when I said that even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Why? Well, that's certainly falling short of perfection. And if God only accepts perfection because God demands perfection, how is it that he can be faithful to us even when we are faithless? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus was faithful for us. Our relationship to God is based entirely on his faithfulness, not ours. So um, a number of years ago, probably seven years ago now, I was being interviewed and, uh, and I was asked this question. In what ways is grace most commonly misunderstood today? And the questioner was, the interviewer was asking me that question 
um, really in terms of in what ways is grace most commonly misunderstood inside the church these days? And this was my answer. I wrote it out and I stand by every word of it, even though it's six, seven years later. I said, I think the main way that grace is misunderstood in the church today is when people confuse it with cheapened law. Let me explain what I mean. Think of Jesus' crushing line in the Sermon on the Mount. You, therefore, must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Grace, for many Christians, is the reduction of God's demands. Because of grace, we think we just need to try hard. Grace becomes this law-cheapening agent attempting to make the law easier to follow. So be perfect gets cheapened into do your best. Most people think that those who talk a lot about grace have a low view of God's law. Others think that those with a high view of God's law are the legalists. But actually, it's a low view of the law that produces legalism since a low view of the law causes us to conclude that we can do it. That the bar is low enough for us to jump over. A low view of the law makes us think that the standards are attainable, the goals are reachable, and the demands are doable. That's why self-righteousness always accompanies legalism. Because legalists have a tendency to believe they're pulling it off and therefore they look down their noses on someone who's failing. And they think to themselves, I mean, come on, get your act together. And the reason they think that, this is, we all hate self-righteousness, but we have to look underneath the surface and say, what is it that produces self-righteousness? It's, it's legalism. And where does legalism come from? Legalism comes from the lowering of God's demands, the cheapening of God's law, putting the bar low enough so that we actually think we can jump over it. It makes God's demands doable. And if we think we're doing it, and I don't think you're doing it, that gives me the right to look down on you. So that's where it comes from. Um, This means that the biggest problem facing the church today is not cheap grace, but cheap law. The idea that God accepts anything less than the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Only when we see that the way of God's law is absolutely inflexible will we see that God's grace is absolutely indispensable. A high view of the law reminds us that God accepts us on the basis of Christ's perfection, not our progress. Grace, properly understood, is the movement of a holy God toward an unholy people. He doesn't cheapen the law or ease its requirements. He fulfills them and then gives his righteousness to us. That was my answer then. And that is my answer now. Um, So I say all that to say this. As we make our way through the Ten Commandments, we are not going to dumb down the law and make it a doable checklist on how to be good. That's not the goal of this series. We're going to explore the highness of God's demands and the specific ways we fall short of each one. And then we're going to explore the specific ways that Jesus met the demands on our behalf so that we could be free forever. That's the goal of the series. Um, Because the gospel 
is the good news that the one who makes the demands also meets the demands. That's the gospel. That's why it's good news. So, commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Martin Luther, my historical hero, said that the first commandment is foundational. Because failure to keep the first commandment is failure to keep all the commandments because all of the other commandments are dependent on the first commandment. Okay? So, at first glance, it may seem like Christian people do okay with this one, you know? I mean, after all, we're not atheists, you know? We shall have no other gods before me. I can sign off on that one. Don't tell me I'm not pulling that one off. I can do that. I mean, I'm not an atheist. I'm not an agnostic. I believe in God. So I think this one I've got. Now, we may get to some others that I don't have in the bag, but this one I got in the bag. Um, we believe in God. We're, we're not atheists. But the first commandment is not addressing atheism. Okay, it's addressing idolatry. And idolatry is not what you think it is. A couple weeks ago, um, I told you that when we think of idols... We typically think of statues that people bow down to in far-off places. We, we think of idolatry as the practice of primitive people in primitive places. That we're not idolaters. I also quoted John Calvin who said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. That we're doing this all the time. We're taking the good gifts of God and turning them into ultimate objects of worship in a variety of ways. Subtle and not so subtle. Um, the Bible defines idolatry as anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. And this means that idols are not just bad things like the thirst for money and the thirst for power. They can also be good things like your kids, uh, getting good grades, uh, a dream, an ambition, a goal. An idol is something or someone that you trust in to save you, which means that your relationships, your work, your reputation, all of these things can become idols. And we're going to look at that more specifically next week. But specifically this week, uh, what I want to look at is the fact that the chief idol is the idol of self. And we've seen that's made, made clear from Genesis chapter 3 onward. When Adam and Eve decided for all of us that they would rather be their own God. A while back, a, a friend, a number of years ago now, wrote an article called um, The Me Generation. Where he argued that every generation is the me generation. Every generation. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about how millennials are the me generation. As if their generation is not the me generation. The person speaking that. Um, but this friend of mine argued that every generation is the me generation, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And he said this, Adam and Eve, wanting to believe the devil, said, not God, me. And in every generation from the beginning of time, sin has caused the human heart to say, me, me, me. To where every generation... 
is the me generation. You see, failure to believe that we are already accepted and loved because of what Jesus has done for us will cause us to look to something other than Jesus as the real source of our meaning and happiness. Okay, I'm going to say that again. It's very, very, very important. It's a game changer, a bona fide game changer. Failure to believe that we are already fully accepted and loved because of what Jesus has done for us will cause us to look to something other than Jesus as the real source of our meaning and our happiness. So you'll find yourself trusting in your ability to be a good parent or a good spouse. You'll trust in your personality. You'll trust in your gifts. You'll trust in your smarts. You'll trust in the way you look to get you places. You'll trust in your morality. You'll trust in your spiritual performance. You'll trust in all of those things to be your real saviors. You may say, God is my savior, theologically or theoretically, but functionally, practically, you find yourself depending on all of these other things or all of these other accomplishments or all of these other people to be your real functional saviors. So, failure to believe that God already loves you because of Jesus' accomplishment will cause you to look to something you can accomplish to be your significance and your worth. That is why unbelief is the root, is the core of all of our sinful pursuits. When we fail to believe that everything I need, all of the love, all of the worth, all of the meaning, all of the acceptance and the approval, um, all of the value, everything I need in Christ, I already possess that the keys are already in my pocket. When I fail to believe that, I spend my life looking to secure those things for myself. So, uh, for instance, and I've used this illustration before. Um, for instance, if, if I don't believe that all of the love that I long for, I already have because of what Jesus has done for me, I'm going to spend my married life trying to extract from Stacy what I think I need in order to feel stable. On the other hand, and that's going to be exhausting, and the same is true for her. If she fails to believe that all of the love she needs and craves, she already has because of what Jesus has done for her, she's going to spend her time simply saying, love me, love me, love me, not how can I love you. And when you have a marriage relationship where two people recognize that everything they have, or any relationship for that matter, where two people recognize that everything they need in Christ they already have, so they spend their lives giving rather than taking from one another, that's heaven on earth. At least a taste of heaven on earth. So the gospel, this announcement, this good news that everything we need in Jesus we already have becomes the flavor for all of life. It's the reason Jesus said, I've come to set the captives free. It is a burdensome way to live when you feel like you have to extract from other people all the time what you think you need in order to be happy, in order to feel stable, in order to feel safe, in order to feel approved, in order to feel accepted. Um, so it all goes back to the doctrine of justification by works. That I am what I do, and I am what I can become. That my identity is ultimately established based on what I can do, what I can accomplish, who I can become. And at first this seems promising, just like it did to Adam and Eve. You can be like God. That was the initial temptation. 
that was too good to pass up, and we, we've been um, succumbing to that temptation ever since. And while at first it may seem promising that we can be like God, what we begin to realize, what we soon realize, is that this makes life very heavy and very hard because being God is just too big of a job for us. Martin Luther called this life the life of an unhappy God, lowercase g. It's a life marked by fear. I better make it. I better get it or else. I better get him to love me. I better, I better get her to accept me. I better feel the financial security that I need or else I'm not going to make it. It's all, it's life resting on your shoulders. It's life lived on the performance treadmill, actually. And it's not that things like our achievements or our relationships or our goals or our gifts are bad things in and of themselves. They're not. Of course not. Many of those things are gifts from God. It's when we depend on those things to supply us with living water that we end up dying of thirst. It's when we put those things in place of God. When we are banking on those things to be for us and to do for us and to give to us what only God has promised to be and do and give. Um, so the gospel is good news for those who are tired of trying to rescue themselves. The gospel declares that I don't need to save myself, I don't need to defend myself, I don't need to legitimize myself, I don't need to justify myself. The gospel frees me from the pressure to search high and low for happiness. The gospel announces that I no longer need to live for the love and approval of others because I can now live from the love and approval of God. There is a huge difference between those two things. Living life to get love and approval from those around you equals slavery. Living life as one who is already fully and perfectly loved and approved, that's a game changer. Um, because what that means is I might be able then to enjoy your love and acceptance of me, but I don't need it. And that's freedom. Um, was it Janis Joplin who said that freedom is another word for nothing left to lose. It's very true. When you realize that everything you need before God you already have because of what Jesus has done for you, man, that's a game changer. I mean, that really does. That, that's what real freedom is. That's where it really is located. Um, so when faith in you turns to faith in God, Life ceases to be a tireless effort to prove yourself. Real freedom happens only when the resources of the gospel smash any sense of need to secure for myself anything beyond what Jesus has already secured for me. So Jesus didn't say, come to me and I'll show you how to fix yourself. He didn't say, come to me and I'll tell you how to fix your spouse. He didn't say, come to me and I'll tell you how to rescue the world. He didn't say, come to me and I'll give you a to-do list so that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not what he said. He said, come to me if you're tired of hiding, tired of trying to make it on your own. Tired of being afraid that people won't love you if they see the real you. Tired of keeping up with appearances 
and I will give you rest. Rest from what? From feeling the pressure to do all that stuff. I mean, this world will put a tremendous amount of pressure on you. A tremendous amount of pressure on you. It's one of the reasons that those doors are painted red in the back, intentionally. They signify that we come together as a rescued community. A pack of people who have been set free by what someone else has done for us. And as we make our way through those doors, it is supposed to be a tangible reminder that we are coming together in and through the blood of Jesus who secured everything for us that we need. Everything. So, um, as one of my friends said not long ago, uh, the Christian life can be summarized in this phrase, adjusting to freedom. I love that. It's just so perfect. It's true. I mean, really, I, I, I think if we could see just how radically free we were, our anxiety, our worry, our fears would just fall by the wayside. We will see that one day. Until then, we see through a glass dimly, but we will see fully one day all that Jesus has secured for us. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to conclude this uh, to Romans chapter 5, because in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, um, Paul says that Jesus is the second Adam. And he launches into this sort of deep theological discourse on what that means. The book of Romans, which is, I know you're probably, books of the Bible, like children, you're not supposed to have favorites, you know, but I kind of do have a favorite child. <laughs> My daughter's here this morning. I had to say that because she's here. Um, I kind of have a favorite book in the Bible, Romans, um, and Romans is... It's heavy theological lifting, but it's deep. Everything God wants us to know about him, ourselves, sin, grace, Jesus, rescue, freedom is found in the book of Romans. Um, but in Romans chapter 5, Paul is laying the groundwork for what he's about to say, specifically in Romans chapter 8. And he calls Jesus the second Adam. Well, what does that mean? It's very important for us to know what that means in light of this first commandment. And in light specifically of the fact that it was in the Garden of Eden that, Jesus, that Adam determined for the entirety of the human race that we didn't need God, that there would be other gods before God and we would be God. Okay? So it's really important to go, what's the connection here? Um, and so when Paul calls Jesus the second Adam, what... What's he saying? Well, Adam was tested in the garden, the Garden of Eden, and it was a test to let God be God. And Adam failed, and as a result, everyone died. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in a different garden and whose obedience is given to us so that we will live forever. Put it like this. The first Adam turned from the Father in a garden, 
the last Adam turned to the father in a garden. The first Adam's sin brought thorns to us. Remember what God said as a result of the curse, Adam's sin? Uh, you're, all of your work is going to be hard from this point forward. You will be toiling in thorns. Okay? The first Adam's sin brought thorns to us. The last Adam wore a crown of thorns for us. The first Adam substituted himself for God. The last Adam was God substituting himself for us. The first Adam sinned at a tree. The last Adam bore our sin on a tree. The first Adam brought condemnation on mankind. The last Adam brought salvation for mankind. So you could put it this way, where Adam failed in Eden, Christ succeeded in Gethsemane. And that Adam's selfishness in Eden took life from us. Jesus' selflessness in Gethsemane gave life to us. So we put ourselves where only God deserves to be. And God puts himself where only we deserve to be. That's the glorious exchange. Sin is us substituting ourselves for God. Salvation is God substituting himself for us. Um, I am a, uh, I'm a desperate man. And if what we say here, week after week, isn't true, if Christianity is something different than what we trumpet here, I don't have a shot. I'm screwed. So are you. If the hope of life depends on us, our effort, our ingenuity, our endurance, our search for something or someone that will fill the inescapable void that we all feel, if the hope of life depends on that stuff, if it depends on me, we will all be lost. A better marriage, a better relationship with our kids, a better job, better health, more financial security. None of that will do it. None of it. The hope of life rides on the shoulders of another. One who succeeded where we fail. One who was strong for us, obedient for us, pure for us, righteous for us, perfect for us. If there are two words other than but God that I love in the Bible when they're put together, it is the two words for us. To get your head around what Christianity really is, let those two words just marinate in your heart. For us. For you. You are able to live and breathe and have hope and deal with being a broken person in a broken world with other broken people because of what God has done for you. Not because of what you've done for yourself or what you can do for yourself. For you. Let's pray together.